Victoria Santos from the Office of Communications and Marketing recently sat down with Dr. Jeff Katz to discuss his background in psychology and some of the research projects he's been involved in. Thank you for joining us today. I'd like to start off with asking you to introduce yourself, um, your name, your title, and what you are currently teaching, please. Uh, my name is Jeff Katz. I am a professor in the psychology department. I currently teach courses in sensation and perception, a course on the orientation to the psychology major, and a course on cognitive psychology. And is your focus uh, primarily on cognitive psychology? Yeah, my research is mainly on cognitive aspects, um, but it's not just about humans, it's about how humans and non-humans uh, cognitively function in the world. Can you tell us a little bit about how you became interested in that um, when you first realized that this was something you wanted to pursue as a career or form of research? Yeah, that's probably a long, long story, <laughs> but uh, the, the short version of it is, is I was always interested in animals as a kid. I used to really enjoy um, watching birds at the bird feeder, hanging out with my dog, and just uh, and always kind of loved pets and and was just part of what I was interested in. Now I never really found the thought, you know, if I was when I was in a, a little kid or in high school that I would be doing something like this for my career, and that didn't really happen until um, I was an undergraduate, and I really did, you know, as a lot of undergraduates, I remember sitting in a class not really knowing what I wanted to do with my life, but watching a lecture uh, in a course on social psychology. I remember the teacher. I won't share her name with her, but she actually was a great teacher. And uh, But at the time, you know, being a, being an undergraduate with an attitude, I was like, oh, I could, I could do this, and, you know, I could probably do it better, right? So um, now whether or not that's true or not, who knows? But, but, at the, but that's what was like, hey, I, maybe I could be a professor. Maybe I could teach and... And uh, and at the time I was doing a ton of research. I was I was and I, I was always driven to the lab, and I was a lab rat. Uh, I worked in multiple labs. One of the neat things I had to do as an undergraduate, it was a small liberal arts school. We had to spend three consecutive semesters in a lab, as required for your degree. Were you a psychology major? I was a psychology major. Yeah, and uh, so that was really cool. So yeah. I was and I loved it. So it was you know I'd have a neuroscience lab where I was like three semesters with a, doing you know rat so studies and learning how to do years later, all kinds of neuroscience. Uh, I worked in Boston and, and then I was also in a, a perception lab and then I was in a development lab. I didn't have to do all that stuff, in but I loved doing it. So I was like oh, prestigious ones and got into uh, got into it and started working in an animal lab um, with a guy by the name of John Donahoe. And uh, it was a uh, opinion lab, and uh, he was, uh, you know, I volunteered to work in his lab. He let me do it, and I was like, kind of want to, I want to do this, you know. And so it's um, now at the time there wasn't a lot of pigeon labs in the world. It used to be a thing where there was like thousands. I mean, not thousands, but it was like everybody had a pigeon lab. That was a pretty co common thing in psychology. It was, uh, you know, learning and it was a major uh, topic area, and so a lot of places had rat labs and pigeon labs, and it was very common. It's, it's falling by the wayside now, unfortunately, but that's what I w went to graduate school is to work with pigeons and study avian cognition. So how birds perceive the world, how they think about the world, world and comparing that always to other species at the same sure. time. So I, uh, plot, at the time, was living in the Northeast, and so I was like, okay. This was before the Internet was, like, at everybody's fingertips. Yes. So I had to go back to the catalogs. I was like, all right, who has a pigeon lab in the Northeast? And, like, I discovered one 
at Brown University, and I discovered one at Tufts University. And uh, I went to interview with uh, the person at Tufts, uh, Bob Cook, and loved it and didn't apply anyplace else and ended up going to work with Bob at Tufts and got my Ph.D. there working with animals for, as, uh, as for, for my Ph.D. work. And then how did you end up at Auburn? What was your path after that? So after I graduated, I went to uh, do a postdoc. It was pretty common in experimental psychology to do postdocs. It's uh, if you want to do a, a to a, a research position okay. where, you, where that's something. If you want to do a teaching job, that's different. You don't need to necessarily do a postdoc. Certainly didn't at that at that time, um, and you still really don't. But so if you want to have a research career, doing a postdoc was pretty much you know a definite thing. So I went to University of Texas Medical School in Houston, worked with uh, Anthony right there. And uh, when you do a postdoc, you want to pick something that kind of, like, develops your career in a novel way. And it was doing more animal work, but I expanded that to working with rhesus monkeys and capuchin monkeys. And as I was there, and I wrote my own grant and got that funded, and then I also got involved in neuroimaging work, too. And and not the type that we do here at Auburn now, but it was involved uh, looking at... uh, Meg technology, Meg, which is a way to look at the electrical activity in the human brain at that time. Projects were that. And that was my first kind of neuroimaging work I did was there. The primate work I was doing with monkeys was also involved neuroimaging, but it wasn't functional. It was we would do uh, pre-surgical scans of the monkeys. There would then be some surgery done on the monkeys, and then there would be post-operative scans, and we could look at the pre and post and make sure the the lesions that were conducted on the monkey brain were accurate. And I don't do any of that research anymore no. because I didn't really <laughs> like it. Uh, but, it, you know, I was, it was part of what I was doing and what I was learning, and I, and I appreciate it, but it's not what I chose to do after that. So, so I was there um, for two years, had my own grant, and I went on the job market because, you know, whenever there are jobs available, you should. And I did not think I'd ever end up in, at Auburn, Alabama. But uh, I came here as an interview and quite liked it and was able to, uh, and got a job offer, and built a, a laboratory here with pigeons. And so it was basically going back to my pigeon roots yeah. that I had done in graduate school, and my first lab here was uh, was all pigeons, and I uh, was able to get get a lot of funding over the years for doing that research for, from NSF and NIH, and, and quite enjoyed doing that. And uh, the, the money to get for pigeon research is, is, is very hard to get unless you want to do neuroscience with your animals, but as I told you just recently, I chose, I really was not into doing neurosurgery on animals, and I just, it's not what I wanted to do, so so I started uh, doing other things, too, and I, and I had done this from the beginning, I was also doing uh, studies with humans, so I have a human lab over in Thatch Hall here, and do various experiments, uh, to me it's always been um, but the the theme had always been related to the pigeon work or to the non to the non human work. So it's one of the things I've done is develop tasks for pigeons and for monkeys and for humans so that you could test the same same thing, the same uh, processes that you're interested across the species. And so, and that to me is the best way to do comparative psychology is to have the same kind of tasks that you can use, and that that way that you're you're able to really make sense of quantitative differences across species and potentially qualitative differences across species. So when you use different tasks, it's more difficult to make strong conclusions about that. So a lot of my earlier work that I did when I was here at Auburn involved concept learning, which involved 
developing tasks to kind of across these different species and, and, and do that. So the next part of that was, so I had the pigeon lab, the money's kind of getting harder to get, uh, and I was doing the human stuff. Uh, and then I had students that were very much interested in working with dogs. And canine research has really exploded over the last, uh, I don't know, 15, 20 years. I call it the, the rise of the dogs. And the, the reason why it's happened, and so dog research is not new. I mean, it's been going on. I mean, Pavlov was sure. doing dog research you know, over 100 years ago. That, that, but what it's done is it's really um, increased in, in psychology. And one of the main reasons, uh, well, there are a lot of reasons that go into it, but part of it is it was just in America it's very hard to get funding for basic science to do behavioral work in any non-human. But the great thing with dogs, the great thing with dogs is that many people have them as pets. Mm-hmm. So you can recruit subjects without having to pay the expensive prices to actually maintain animals on campus. Sure. So I had students that were interested in doing canine research, and the, and the first one was uh, Andy Tompkins, who's now a postdoc at UAB and also works for Hands and Paws there. And she wanted to do a project here at Auburn, and we worked on for our master's thesis developing, building an apparatus that was to look at concept learning in dogs. Look at what? Concept learning in dogs. So building off on some of the other projects I had done with all the other okay. animals, but hey, let's do this, let's look at these kind of concepts in, in dogs. And so she, she kind of built an apparatus and, and made that happen. And she was running that experiment, uh, not on campus. It was she had gotten a little space over at a at a at a vet hospital, privately owned one, not too far off of campus, and got a little space there, and was able to kind of work with some dogs and and kind of put that all together. And and um, that was our first um, step into the canine research. But the heart, but the thing that I've always loved, the passion that I've always had, is to be able to compare humans and, and non-humans. I, I mean, I love doing all kinds of research projects, but that's what I was, what I really like. And and Andy had an interest in that too. And so we were, we were. There were some studies that had just come out showing people had been able to train dogs to remain still to do MRI scanning, functional MRI scanning. So not just kind of getting an anatomical view of the brain, but be able to do actual functional MRI. So that was, that was pretty exciting, and we are like, we should do that too. And as we were just about to delve into that, um, my colleague and good friend, Gopi Deshpande, professor in electrical engineering, had been doing some work with the vet school here at Auburn with, uh, with dogs that were from Canine Performance Sciences, CPS, these are detector dogs, so they're to train, to, trained to detect different odorants. And so he was doing some work and uh, some pilot work on that, and eventually that got into a, a very large grant from DARPA to, to look at these dogs. And he asked me, he found, we basically we kind of, he found, hey, you're working on this, and we had already worked on other projects together, and I said if we had some interest on the, the canine MRI, and he's like, I really want to kind of take this into other areas besides just besides this olfaction. And I was like, well, that's that's perfect. We should work together on the um, visual aspects, and so that's what we did. And so the the first imaging project that Andy and I did with with Gopi, and and I should mention, there's a bunch of people that get involved in this. It's very, as you can imagine, very extensive. A lot of people involved, and and if I name one person, I'll just forget everybody. So it's a, but but there's a lot of people involved, and it's been a really great team. 
And our aspect there was to um, look at dogs that were being trained to be detector dogs and ask if the brain processed in the dogs processed the pictures of pictures of the trainers that were training them to be detector dogs from strangers or unfamiliar people. And then we asked at the same time, so you'd have pictures of familiar people and pictures of unfamiliar people. Then we varied the emotional content in those pictures. So you'd have someone making a, a happy face, right? You'd have someone making uh, an angry face or a neutral face. And so we did that for all the trainers. And they loved it. They had to come in and make their happy and angry faces. And then Andy Tompkins, for a dissertation, collected all this data. And then she, um, we had to, like, counterbalance it and control it, all these kind of valence scores that you get for happy and, and angry, as we're kind of calling them. And we had to score those with the unfamiliar people. So then we would get, you know, grad students and other people that look similar in age to these trainers um, to do happy and, and and angry faces, and we'd, we'd have people independently score them so we can match up the valence score. So in the end, we get this really nice stimulus set that varies the valence, the emotional content, excuse me, <coughs> of the pictures of the faces for the humans that are from trainers and, and for the strangers. strangers. That's right. Okay. And so the, what happens is the dogs lie on their stomach, right? And they're in the scanner and they're just the dog, the great thing about dogs is they're one of two species on the planet that will actually willfully go in and have their brain scanned. Humans being one and dogs being the other one. <laughs> and so they, they, they go in and they, you know, it takes a little while to train them up, but you know, it's definitely sure. doable and they'll remain still. And while they're remaining still, there is a, just like you do with humans, you have a projector screen, mm-hmm. right, that kind of sits in the bottom of the, or sits in the middle of the bore, uh, at the back of the bore, which is the opening where you have your, your scan done. And so if you're a human, you're going and you go inside the bore. So the dog would go inside the bore. There's a projector screen there. And you basically take your PowerPoint presentation. It's a little mm-hmm. more sophisticated than that. But it's essentially, that's what it is. Yeah. You're presenting stimuli at certain times and controlling it. And the dogs would look at these pictures that we collected. And so then we'd look to see where the differences were in the brain. And though we found some really interesting things. So dogs can tell the difference between familiar and unfamiliar faces. And they do vary in their, uh, what parts of the brain respond to the emotional content. And you, what you see is some, some interesting findings comparing it to humans. We know how that works in humans. Uh, same parts of the brain involved in the memory for familiar and unfamiliar. So you see hippocampus. You see for the emotional content, you see the, the amygdala. Um, one of the interesting things that we found, not only were there pictures of, dog, of human faces that we showed the dogs, we also showed them pictures of dog faces. And what you find is that um, there's an area of the brain in the temporal cortex that is responsive to faces. And the same thing is true in humans. It's also true in, true in non-humans, and such as uh, rhesus macaques. And it's true in sheep. You know, so people, you know, say they have this, this area of the brain that processes faces. So dogs have it too, all right? And uh, there's a lab at Emory that, that has discovered that too, and there was one down in Mexico that discovered it. So we're, and there are only three of us in the world that are doing this. So it was good that we had this kind of, um, convergence of a finding that the, the, there's this area in the brain that dogs use to process faces. Now, the neat thing that we discovered here beyond that is 
that it's different whether it's a human face or a dog face. So there, there are these two parts of the temporal lobe in the dog, and they're adjacent to each other. So, there's, so think about like a little strip of brain, and on that strip of brain, part of it's looking at the, it's processing human faces, the other pro- part is doing the dog faces. So they're adjacent, but they're separate, right? And then, so that was kind of a neat discovery. Then we found some other things about it. That, those two areas don't depend on whether it was a familiar or unfamiliar face. They don't depend on whether it was a happy or you know a sad or an angry face or a neutral face. So they're both what we call equally modulated by those emotions. So they weren't dependent on that. So here we have this mystery. We have these two separate areas that are processing dog faces and one for human faces. Now, when you think about that, well, why wouldn't it be that way, right? right? I mean, so, but one of the interesting findings is that one of the other labs didn't find that. They found whether you looked at human or dog faces, it was the same exact area. Now, there are a lot of reasons that could go into that, uh, some technical reasons. Probably one of the more interesting reasons, I think, that could create these differences is we did not use pet dogs in our study, so we use all these kind of detector dogs. Now, detector dogs have a very different life than pet dogs do. Sure. Pet dogs spend their day with their part of your family, you know, they're, you know, you treat them such, and they interact with humans every day of their lives, right? Detector dogs don't, right? They're kenneled dogs, right? They interact with humans a lot, but how they interact is not, not the same way. So you might expect that <coughs> there might be differences in the underlying neural architecture. But what it, what it, what it, if that was true, if that is true, what I'm claiming, then it suggests there's a, probably a neuroplasticity that underlies this, right? So the brain, as we know, is very plastic in humans. It sure would be very plastic in dogs and other animals. We know that. So it might depend on the experiences that the dog has over their lifetime that would make these two areas be separate or unified. And so that's going to be a matter of our future research as we kind of address those as we move on. All right, so that was the first kind of imaging imaging thing that we got into. And, and, and that article I was just talking about is, um, is going to be coming out soon in a, a special issue on, in a journal called Learning and Behavior on Canine um, Cognition. So we're really happy to have that in there. And there's going to be a bunch of other dog articles in there too. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, so you covered a gamut of questions. I was essentially going to ask you to take us through the process and what does it look like when the dog is in there. And so you've already covered all of that, yeah. um, which I can see why you've won the number of teaching awards that you have because I'm learning so much already um, just in this few minutes that we've been talking. So uh, I'm going to switch it over to a little bit on the personal side. Sure. Do you have a dog or do you have any pets? I have a 14-year-old boy. Does that count? No, it doesn't count. I know that. Yeah. So, 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 Maybe in some circles. so, yeah. So I, I of course, say that with, uh, with all. <laughs> um, but what, the reason why I say that, so I've had dogs. Uh, I love dogs. I've had them as my pets as all through my childhood and into my adulthood. Um, and my son wanted a dog. But part of having a dog is... Um, when you're a kid is showing responsibility and ready to do that, right? Mm-hmm. So I said to Joey, I said, like, look, Joe, um, you want a dog, we'll get a dog. I love dogs and, you know, but this is going to be a joint effort. It's not going to be just me doing this, you know, and so I said, we're going to get a goldfish first. And I said to him, all right, Joey, you take care of this goldfish, you feed that fish on a regular basis like you're supposed to, and 
you've cleaned the tank when it needs to be cleaned and all that good stuff. And he's like, and I'm like, if you do that, then we're getting a dog, right? And uh, he was like, great idea, totally cool. So uh, so anyways, it ends up I took care of that goldfish pretty regularly, and he's never asked me for a dog again. <laughs> oh, well, we can learn a lot from that, too, as parents. However, you know, I've been, uh, I've been reconsidering all that because uh, my, my current grad students uh, are a really great bunch of students, and, and they all have dogs and love dogs, and, and um, they keep, hey, we found this dog for adoption. You know, we know you're thinking. So I'm, I'm close to getting back into yeah. that, I think. So it's, it's a lot of temptation in um you know, the vaporwake dogs, I was reading the article that was in the uh, Auburn Magazine, and, and you're mentioned in there. Well, the psychology department is mentioned mm-hmm. in there um, with part of the training and looking for traits with these, these vaporwake dogs. And um, one of the things they mentioned in there is having pur- purposefully, specifically cuter dogs, labs, um, to be a little bit more approachable because parents, you know, through, like, TSA lines, if they have a Doberman pinch or something that kind of has that... Yeah. negative kind of uh, connotation to it so um, I actually was coming back from Seattle a couple days ago and they had a sniffing dog I don't know what they're sniffing for I don't know mm. it didn't tell me I asked um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know people want to stop and so that's the only I think that's the only really kind of downside is you know the, the man that was there said just keep going just keep going the dog you don't need to acknowledge the dog you know they can just do it um, because they're not sniffing you, they're sniffing the air. Is that correct? Do you know about yeah, that? Yeah, that's right. They are, yeah, it depends what they're being trained for. But, yeah, that's right. Uh, they're being uh, trained to detect odorants, right? So yeah. those are air molecules that are odors that are traveling through air currents. And right? that's something that you all sort of study as well, right? I mean, in terms of, um, and, and maybe I'm misunderstanding this, in terms of the, the patterns of the dogs that um, you, know, you were talking about, perception and cognition, um, but there's also the olfactory side of things still, correct? You'll yep. still study that in yep. addition to all the other things? Yeah. Okay. So so the vapor-wake dogs, yeah. So that that is, um, I think, one of the bigger and more imper- important questions is, and one of the things that we're very much interested in now, is training a dog to go from, you know, birth to being a premier vapor-wake dog is not cheap, right? Yeah. It's expensive. And... Auburn's done a great job of doing that. Canine Performance Sciences is, is awesome. I mean, they're one of the world leaders in, in, in training detector dogs. But the thing is, it's expensive, and not every dog graduates to become a vaporwake dog, oh. right? So you get – those are the best dogs, right? And then again, you have some that are called washouts, right? And they they don't get sold to, you know, be – to, to different uh, places, so whatever their jobs, job. yeah, yeah, whatever they're being trained to do. Um, and then there's another tier. There can be multiple tiers in there, but, you know, there, you have the premier, you have the ones that don't graduate at all, and then you've got ones that graduate, they just don't go on to the, the premier detector job, right? right? But they still get sold and they can be used. And they're, um, so one of the things that we're very much interested in is developing uh, an endophenotype, which is basically looking at behavior and looking at brain in, the, in these dogs to see if we can find predictors early on in their training that will say this dog is going to be, you know, successful. the premier dog, a yeah. successful dog, and this dog <coughs> is not going to be. Wow. And so the, the way we're doing that, um, so there's uh, a, a couple things. Uh, Lucia Lazarowski, who's a um, uh, current graduate student, and she's uh, she'll be graduating in the – in the summertime, but her dissertation 
is asking that question. So what she's done is she's this is all behavioral work, and so in the in, with the dogs that are being bred there at, at CPS, she's taken dogs and tested puppies. I mean, who doesn't like working with puppies, right? So it's a she's been able to work with three month three month old puppies, six month old, and then nine month old. And what she does is a battery of tests. I think there's nine of them that they're they're done at each of these age groups, right? And then, so you're going to get dogs at three months, dogs at six months, dogs at nine months. And it's a between groups design. So it means if you got tested at three months, you're not going to get tested at nine months, right? So you're going to – and then then we're also looking at another uh, set of dogs that will be longitudinal, and that is if you're tested at three, you're going to get tested at six, you're going to get tested at nine. So basically you have a cross-sectional design and then a longitudinal design. Now, looking at the performance in those tasks, right, we're going to, and that data is, it's collecting now, or it's almost completed, so I can't tell you the story yet. I mean, I have some, some we have some teasers, but it's, uh, but nothing I, that we can strongly say anything about. But essentially, the, the project is, is that. So once you have the behavioral performance, you know, these dogs then, some of them are going to go on and they're going to be the, the graduate with high honors and be vaporwake dogs, some of them are not. We're going to take that data and then look at the data that we collected over the developmental time points and ask, all right, which of these dogs, are there any predictors in these dogs about which ones go on to be really good and which ones not? And if there are, and hopefully there are, and there, 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 it looks like there's going to be, is that then you can say, all right, let's select these dogs at three months old and be like, let's, these are going to be the dogs that are, we know are going to get good. Yeah. And these other ones, they're showing the signs of not being good, so... You know, let's let's get them uh, uh, on a different different yeah. track, right? Yeah. A different path, yeah. right? So it's um, and hopefully that that that's the big plan. So there's that with behavioral work, and then also do that with brain imaging work too. And you also, you know, we, you mentioned a teenager earlier. You also work with Brain Camp, and that's yeah. coming up soon. Can you tell us just a little bit about that? I know that doesn't entirely fit into what you're doing with the, the dogs and the, the animals, but. Um, like I said, we joked about that earlier, so it's yeah. a good segue. No, BrainCamp <laughs> is uh, you know, super fun, really exciting. We were just looking at the list of prospective campers, and you know, there's always more than the number of spaces, but it's, uh, so you sometimes got to make some tough decisions But on that. So BrainCamp is a week-long camp, and it's run by uh, Dr. Robinson in the psychology department and Kathy Dodgen, who's a high school teacher here in Auburn, and myself. It, it started... I think this is the fourth or fifth year. I've kind of lost track I now. So. Um, I used to go to visit uh, Kathy's high school class, her AP psychology class, and I would just give presentations about brain, right? And they, sure. they loved it, and neuroscience. And then Dr. Robinson, when she was hired, she came and she started doing similar things. And then, you know, the idea of having a, a camp for high school kids towards going into college kind of emerged. And they were like, we just kind of hothoused it and, you know, did it out of pocket to start. To start, right. And then Jen Robinson's had all the energy to go, all right, I'm going to write an outreach grant and get us some money to kind of do these things. And she's been really great with that aspect of it. So so we've been able to kind of develop the program, and we've worked with uh, Auburn Youth Programs here on campus so that the first year it wasn't an overnight camp. But after that, it's like students from all over the country can come. They can stay in the dorm wow. for a week here on campus, and, you know, they 
they house them, you know, they give them the food, and they basically wake up, take a golf cart over to the to the imaging center. We do camp all day there until five, you know, nine to five kind of thing. Yeah. And they pick them up and they go back to the dorms and have the dorm experience. And so during that week, we do uh, uh, we try to do as many activities as we can, right, to kind of keep all the campers engaged and have fun. You sure. know, they don't like it if we make it too lecture-like because right. you know they don't want to be in school. Right. And uh, um, <laughs> And so we do a bunch of different activities. The highlight of that is uh, they, uh, they, if they want to, they can each have their brain scan. And they go in and they, we do an MR scan with them and we do a functional scan so they can see the structure, they can see the function. We do some basic tasks so it's really um, it's not easy to uh, analyze, but you can do it quickly, quickly enough. And they can then get their pictures of their brain, they get their functional data, and they learn how to kind of go through the software to kind of look at it. So, and that's the big, you know, that's the big highlight. And we, around that, we do different projects. It is related to the dog project in one way. So one of the things that we do is we have people from CPS come on over and give some demos of detector dogs in action. Okay. So they'll do a few tasks outside in the yard. And, and then last year, we brought them over to uh, an area where they're trained on campus or off campus, but over in the vet school, okay. and uh, it's still on campus, I should say. Sure. Yeah. And it's uh, just not main campus. Right. And then um, <coughs> and they get to see the, some, of the, some of the tasks that they do there and, and get to see the dogs and got to see some puppies and the training facilities for that, and they all love that. And then, then I tie that back into the brain imaging with canines and why that's important, and you know, they, they get a little tiny bit of lecture, but they can, they can handle that after they've got, got to play with puppies. You know? well, so yeah. it's... Okay. So, so it's super exciting. We we love doing that camp, and it's 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 a lot of fun. When is it? It is. June? It is uh, the summertime. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think I, it's June. I, I can tell you the exact date if you want it. But, oh, that's good. But it's yeah. yeah, it's either the end of June or um, end of. I want to say it's the end of July. Oh, is it the end of July? Yeah, end okay. of July. I want to say it's after Fourth of July. So okay, okay. Well, thank you for your time. I, I think that's we touched on a lot, and there's, you know, you've done so much, and have received multiple recognitions for what you do, and we didn't even touch on that. But um, I think it's safe to say that you're uh, you've exceeded your goals in the teaching, <laughs> and and uh, you know obviously you, you just continue to um, expand your research. So it's been amazing and interesting, and I look forward to sharing it with people. Yeah. Well, thanks for inviting me to come talk with you, Vicky. Enjoyed thank it. You. Thank you. This podcast has been produced by the College of Liberal Arts Office of Communications and Marketing. To learn more, please visit us at cla.auburn.edu. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at AU Liberal Arts. I'm Kristen Dietrich, and thanks for listening.